This is K-12 Tech Talk. K-12 Tech Talk. The podcast by K-12 Techs for K-12 Techs. Real conversations, real arguments, and real banter on trending K-12 technology topics and issues. Live from the somethingcool.com studios, this is the K-12 Tech Talk podcast, episode 120. My name is Josh. Uh, Absent, playing a part-timer, is Chris. And, uh, but however, Mark has saved the day. Mark is here. Hello, Mark. I'm always here. You're always here, yes. Um, You and I both are fighting some technical issues. Your internet was out when you got home. Um, my stupid webcam, the lights are on, like it's plugged in and working, uh, but it is not working. It is not working. So is Mark is, uh, we are recording this without my face. So Mark is, uh, this will be interesting to see if we step on each other at all tonight, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which very well could happen. Uh, so Chris is absent. He's, I guess, gone part time. Um, it's the end of school. He might be on vacation. We're not real sure. Uh, pyramid scheme con- convention. We're not we're not real sure where he is right now. Uh, so hopefully he's back next week. Mark, are you guys you guys aren't out for school yet or out for summer yet? Are you? No, we're in the like the last feels of the school year. But no, we we New England we go Ju- late. Yeah, you go into June, don't you? Deep into June. Deep into June. Now, our last day with students, it was a half day today. So uh, students are gone. Our summer school starts next week. Wow. Um, yeah. And our summer school will be done by the end of June. So how long does your summer school go past June, uh, July 1st? Oh, yeah. Wow. Wait, wait. Summer school past July 1st? It doesn't even begin until after July 1st. Are you kidding me? What's your... What's your summer school schedule? Uh, June 1st to June 29th. <laughs> What's yours? Uh, after the 4th of July is when summer school starts. Wow. And you, do you? Wow. Yeah. And then it goes till like early August. I was going to. So what's the buffer then between the end of summer school and starting of the year? Uh, so the school year starts just after Labor Day. Okay. So, okay. yeah, so we start just into September. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how different regions do that differently. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very common in New England. You know what else is common in New England, Mark? Fortinet Firewalls. You can't answer this question. Fortinet Firewalls, because you're not a Fortinet customer. Uh, We're going to talk about Fortinet real quick. Uh, They are popular everywhere because they are rock-solid firewall. They're Fortigate uh, firewall. Email Chris Illingworth. He is the guy who checks the email. Check it or send it at Fortinetpodcast at Fortinet.com. Chris really could have come up with a better email address. Um, But if you have any questions about Fortinet and their product line of uh, ample, ample product line from reporting to tokens to um, network extenders to firewalls to reporting tools, uh, email Fortinetpodcast at Fortinet.com dot com and say hello to Chris. Um, so one of the things that came out in the last week since we've been on the last time was our friends over at Cosa. And I think it's I think it's fair to call them our friends, don't you think, Mark? Best friends. Best for woo, you woo. Stepping it up. Stepping up. Yeah, you and you and Cosin are besties. Um 
So Cosin released the 2023 State of Ed Tech. Uh, I guess the official title is Annual Cosin Report. Oh, no, that's just the title of the article. Never mind. Uh, so Cosin released their 2023 State of Ed Tech Study um, Leadership Report. And they came out with, um, I guess you could say, 11 key findings in this report. Some of these I find pretty interesting. Um, mm. We'll step through these. Mark, do you want to lead us off? Yeah. So number one, one of their survey findings, and this is from their kind of, they did a summary of their, of their full report. So this is right from Cosin of their 11 findings over 10 years. The top challenge for ed tech leaders has not changed. Budget constraints, lack of resources were ranked the number one challenge in 2013 and 10 years later still is number one. Yeah, that's, I don't I don't think that's surprising and I think that's a pretty fair assessment for everybody like no matter where you are budget is going to be an issue right yeah, yeah. um especially with esser money drying up I, I think that's going to become more of an issue but their next finding is that the top three priorities have changed yes top uh, three in 2013 can you guess um well I I have the report in front of me so I know the answer uh, <laughs> mobile <Can> learning, you- <laughs> BYOD and online assessment readiness, which, okay. Were you, were you in your current role in 2013? I was, that was, it, you know, what's funny. That was my first year. So I'm hitting my 10 year anniversary. So this is a fun thing to read. So I, my, I was not at my current role in 2013, but I do remember discussions of BYOD and is that the easier way to go because it's cheaper? I mean, you're not Mm -hmm. buying devices then. Um, But in 10 years, those priorities have changed. Uh, This year, can you take a guess, Mark? Uh, I mean, I could guess or I could just read it because it's also in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) Read it, Mark. Uh, Cybersecurity tops the list, followed by network infrastructure, data privacy and security. Which I 100% agree. I think back in 2013, I remember the biggest thing on my mind was getting ready for online assessments. Yeah, I I find all three of those very interesting. And I'm happy happy to see data privacy on that list. Um, Cybersecurity, I think, is kind of a no-brainer. Number three, only a third of ed tech leaders feel their district has sufficient resources to deal with cybersecurity issues. I'm surprised the number's that high. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because like, I, I'm I'm just trying to think off the top of my head of the districts that I know that have a CISO and I can't think of one. So I, I don't know. I, and not that that makes you prepare to take on a, an incident, but um, yeah. Well, I think if, if you're one of those, the one third, Sorry, my phone's ringing. If you're one of the one third of ed tech leaders that feels you have sufficient resources, then you don't know what the real threats are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you likely don't know where your gaps are. Uh, that's a good. <laughs> that's a really good point. Uh, number four: twelve percent of districts don't allocate any funds for cybersecurity defense. Um, I, th- yeah, I don't. I get it. I get the statement. I don't know how I feel about that 12%. I don't know if, if I thought it would be higher or lower than that. Um, because that's a pretty, that's a pretty stark statement. They don't allocate any funds for cybersecurity defense. Yeah. See, I think that the hard part is that, that that's a very vague term. And I, I think that people are answering their question a little bit differently. So when I, when I'm, 
asked about my cybersecurity budget, there are things that we spend specific money on cybersecurity. And there are things that's like, well, a part of this initiative or part of this system is focused on cybersecurity. Like your E-rate, your filter compliance. I, you, you might put a portion of that into cybersecurity. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I might have to go back and read the entire report to see a little bit more about that. Yeah. See how people are answering that one. Um, but same topic, the number five one is most districts, 66% do not have a full-time cybersecurity position. I think that's, that's not a surprise at all. No, no. And, and again, I, of the districts I know that I talk to frequently, I can think of one district that has a, a, a declared cybersecurity analyst, and that's just recent in the last year. Um, again, I think it's, it's a case of have and have not there. Uh, number six, voice over IP is now ubiquitous with 95% of districts having implemented today as compared to 55% in 2013. Yeah. Not a surprise there. Yeah. That's, that's not a surprise at all. Um, if you are still running an old pots phone system, one, I would like to know what that system is because that's, that's a uh, bulletproof apparently. Uh, and two, it's, Hey, it's time. It's time to make the jump. Yeah. Yeah. Next, though, is now we start to get into more like leadership staffing things. Um, 55% of ed tech leaders come from an education or instructional background, a 10% increase since 2013. Those from a technology background currently account for 42%. And, and we might spend a couple minutes talking about this because, Mark, we give you trouble about you were a teacher before you came into IT and IT leadership. Um. I, I shouldn't be surprised by these numbers. I'm actually surprised that that number has grown in the last 10 years um, because I feel like districts have um, realized they need technical expertise from a leadership standpoint, you know, you yeah. all, but you also need that person with the soft skills, the people skills and teachers have those skills of that. They're great at that. And not all technical people do. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I don't know. That's an interesting, it's interesting to me that that number has increased. What are your thoughts? I'm not surprised because I think that, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been just this gigantic explosion of ed tech. And so more and more districts are probably increasing the number of people in, in ed tech or focused on ed tech. And so I'm not surprised that there's been a growth of people who've made the jump from instructional technology or instruction to um, sort of ed tech, uh, ed tech leadership positions. So I'm not surprised that that's grown because I do think that. Uh-oh. I think Mark's internet may have gone out again. Mark, are you there? I'm here. Oh, there you are. Oh, did I cut off? Oh, sorry. Yeah, you might want to kill your camera because you're red. Like you have bad signal. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what were you saying? <laughs> I said a, a perfect answer, but I can't. Oh, I'm sure. I, I, yeah, I heard that, you know, they've, they've extended or they've expanded departments. Um, so it's not surprising they have more people in ed tech roles. Um, but, and then you cut out. Uh, no, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, from, I guess, looking at my department, we've added, uh, one full-time position since I've been there. So I've been there nine years and that's purely a technical role. Actually all, everyone in my department have, um, 
very technical backgrounds. None of them are teacher backgrounds. Mark, when you look at expanding your department or when you see other districts around you expanding their department or filling roles, do you see, um, how, how do you see districts weighing that technical experience versus classroom experience? They're both valid experiences. Don't, don't, don't take this as, you know, a slight either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But how I, do you see that? I think it's hard. So if, if I look at just general people within K-12 technology, education technology, I think over the last 10 years, I don't, I don't disagree that there's been a growth of more people being or getting into this field and districts adding more positions. So I'm not surprised that that has started with more instructional folks. You know, we need to figure out how to use all these tools in the classroom effectively. Um, I do think though, that over the next 10 years, as the focus is really going to be on cybersecurity, on data privacy, on network infrastructure, we're going to start to see that balance, that, that balance tip a little bit more towards the technical. Um, But I, 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 think that it's a healthy balance. I think that it's great that there's, you know, it's a 42% um, technical 55% ed tech leaders um, or instructional backgrounds. Cause I think that it's really healthy to have a mixture of both opinions. And I think if, if I were to be able to, you know, if the district came to me and said, Hey, you have uh, no restrictions, money's not an object, space is not an object how would you like to build out a department? I definitely want to add instructional roles. I, I want to, I want to add those ed tech type roles because we don't have those now. And yeah. I can definitely see a need for those roles. I know, I know school districts um, in Missouri that have split their IT departments recently. They have a director of technology, which handles all of the technical stuff, your cybersecurity, networking, infrastructure type, um, responsibilities. Then they spun off a director of ed tech, which then has all of the instructional responsibilities, picking applications, training teachers on software. Um, sometimes the data privacy stuff is rolled into that role because that's, you know, they're, they're in that vertical of um, that's, that's their sphere of yeah. concern or circle of yeah. concern. I think it makes complete sense. Um, and hope, <clears throat> hopefully we see that more as more of a trend. Yeah. And I, I think ultimately it comes down to making sure that you have respect for the other opinion, right? So I come from instructional background. I do not have the same technical training that my, that a lot of members on my team have. And I have to respect that they know what they're doing and I'm not going to step on their toes. And when they ask, you know, when they say, Hey, this is the right technical setup or the technical configuration, I respect that. I respect that opinion. And I step back when I'm not, when I'm not in my, my, uh, my comfort area. And the opposite is true too, where, you know, the technical folks on your team have to respect that people who come from instructional background know the best way to incorporate these tools and these systems into the classroom work and help and advise you of the best way for these things to be accepted into the classroom. So I think that that balance is super helpful, super healthy too. Completely agree. Uh, number eight, the percentage of ed tech leaders earning $130,000 or more has tripled over 10 years from 6% in 2013 to 18% today. Um, I think this number can be a little bit misleading because I, I think 
you would need to know the background of the survey and the size of the districts that answered yeah. the survey. And, and that question in particular, because clearly, I mean, logic dictates the larger the district, the easier that it is going to be to afford that size of salary. Mm-hmm. Um, because the smaller districts that are member of members of COSIN aren't going to be able to afford that salary. Um, you have any, any other comments to that? I, I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with what we just talked about with, you know, there's a, there's an increase in people in, with an instructional background and typically people in an in instructional background in a school district are going to come in with higher salaries. So I think, I think those two are slightly related to each other. Hmm. Um, I mean, and I, I don't, I don't mean this is like, that's a judgment call. I just mean that when you're in a school district, you're typically, you're certified, you're licensed, uh, you might be in a union as negotiated rates. So I, I think that those two have a little bit of an overlap. Um, but you know, 130 K is a lot for, for the majority of school districts. So that's a, that is a, that is a big salary. Yeah. Yeah. That I would, I would like to see the breakdown on that. Uh, nine, this one struck me as interesting <clears throat> just because timing and, uh, stuff like that. Students are less likely to receive support for off-campus broadband access than in 2021. During the height of the remote learning, 95%, 95% of students were provided off-campus broadband compared to 74% of districts this year. I'm sorry, 95 of districts were providing off-campus broadband compared to 74% this year. Um, I, I don't know how to take this one because... We still offer, like if a family comes to us and says, my kid's in the high school, my high school's one-to-one, send home devices, we either, due to where we live, uh, there's not infrastructure, or mm-hmm. we cannot afford, we don't have internet. For, for whatever reason, we don't have internet. Can the district help us out? We still have hotspots, thanks to T-Mobile's uh, Pro, I can't remember project 1 million. It used to be 1 million. Now I think it's yeah. like 10 million. Um, we still have those hotspots that we pass out. So do I consider us one of the districts that provides off campus broadband? Yeah. I'm surprised the number dropped down to 74%. Um, you know. consider a hotspot to be broadband? What else? You What else? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it fast broadband? No, it's better than dial up. It's better than nothing. Um, yeah. Can I watch a movie on it? Eh, the right hotspot I could with the right service I could. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Um, I, I'm not surprised the number has dropped. I do think that, you know, we had no choice but to provide a lot of students with broadband or, or internet home internet support during the pandemic. Um, as we, as we make our way off of it, we make our way back into the schools. I think districts are saying, okay, we we need to focus our supports a little bit more. Um, more and more families acquired broadband on their own. And so, you know, our, our, the need for us to support is not as strong as it was. I also think too, and this is where, you know, how people answer that question might be important. More families are receiving broadband through the emergency broadband relief act. Uh, did I get that yeah, right? It I changed names. I know. What you, yeah. But more and more folks are getting help from outside sources, specifically the the, the FCC or the federal government's uh, broadband support. So I think that, at least in my district, that accounted for us saying, well, we're actually not providing mm. the same level of support because this federal program exists now. Interesting. And I, I, that's easier for you guys to say because it, you, 
you're in a rather um, urban area, it's difficult for us to say that because we have a certain amount of our population. It's it's about 6% of our population that live in the country, in the woods, no neighbors kind of thing, where carriers don't have the ROI to bring infrastructure to them. Um, there's a there's a district not far to the south of me, and by not far, I mean like less than seven miles to the south of me, that like 70% of their district is, live in an area that there is not infrastructure for broadband internet. So they have to rely on either hotspots or, you know, T-Mobile, home Wi-Fi, yeah. that, that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that, that answer, I think, could be skewed heavily based on the region or where the district is, is located top of yep. lot, you know, geographically. Yep. Um, yep. Okay. Number 10, number, you 10. Take number 10. Yeah. The number one challenge to professional learning is prioritizing the time over other institutional and organizational priorities. Amen. Amen. I, I have a hard time with it. I struggle with this. Uh, I feel guilty when I leave the office for a meeting like, you know, a yeah. professional learning event or conference, whatever you want to call it. Um, I was out of the office. I went to a tabletop exercise with CISA and the FBI last week. Um, and I felt guilty because there was so much going on on campus. Like there was prep for graduation there was testing still going on, but you know, sometimes you have, and sometimes you have to do it. I think that's where Chris is right now. Um, is it hard for you to leave as well, Mark? I mean, you've got a, a sizable team. Um, is do you have that kind of feeling as well when you try to leave? Oh, hundred percent. I I feel like traveling or leaving or going to any sort of professional learning out of the office is so much more stressful uh, because I'm not. I'm still connected. I'm still staring at my email. I'm staring right. at my chats dealing with issues over email and chats is so much more stressful when you're not there. So um, I definitely feel the pressure to stay at the district, to stay in the office, not to leave. Um, or even when you're in professional learning opportunities on campus, it's it's hard to get your mind out of the day-to-day, out of the, you know, the yeah. drudgery of you know emails and alerts and other issues. I, I will say that's something that I felt this year with all of our implementation meetings for infinite campus there, like we've, we've got meetings every week. I mean, I'm in at least one meeting or training every week. A couple of weeks ago, I had four, four days of the week. I was in a meeting about infinite campus, either training or management meeting or whatever. Um, that has definitely shown itself this year to me. Yeah. Um, number 11, I'll let you take, because I am not as much on this bandwagon. of districts are implementing single sign-on, making it the top interoperability initiative. What bandwagon are you not on? Not that I'm not (laughs) on the SSO bandwagon. Like, we do SSO. Don't get me wrong. But it is not... I don't know. I can't say it's my top initiative. What do you think? Uh, Well, okay... So I, I think we got We can play with the words a little bit. When they say making it the top interoperability initiative, I think it's definitely um, for districts that are implementing different interoperability standards, whether it's data standards and, and security standards and, and single sign-on, I think that's the top one. It's the easiest. It is something that most of us, if, if not all of us, should have the capabilities of doing within our system. So I think in terms of top interoperability initiative, I think that makes sense top initiative you're right i think that there are many other things that we're dealing with um 
I'll, I'll just I'll say again. I come back to this crutch of Infinite Campus. Moving to Infinite Campus, I would say one of my top inter- interoperability. That's hard to say. Interoperability initiatives is moving our interfaces to one one. Good lord, one roster interfaces. Um, just because our old student information system was not one roster compliant and didn't push that. Uh, so that's, that's one of our top things right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. The single sign on everybody's on office 365 or Google, um, you really, hopefully there's nobody out there still running old exchange server, but you know, everybody has a, as a cloud-based, uh, collaboration system. And so, you know, the implementation of single sign-on using that should be a very, it should be a no-brainer for all of your new adoptions. Um, I, I admit I'm still struggling with certain vendors who are just like, eh, we're just not there yet. Yeah. It's not really a priority for us. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not surprised. It's one of the top thing, their top interoperability initiatives. I feel like it should be so much higher, more higher than 85%. Yeah. Um, but the vendors also still have a long ways to go. Yeah, it yeah, wrangling vendors is is something. So, that was the some of the key findings. Um we'll link the whole report in the show notes if you want to read it. And again, this is from our friends, best friends, sorry, Mark, um at Cosin, and if you're not a Cosin member, definitely look into joining their membership. Um they they offer very valuable things. And in the the study, it says that they're um, coming out with a salary study as well of, of COSA members. So it'd be interesting uh, to see that. So Mark, go grab a drink real quick while I talk about Extreme Networks. Extreme Networks has been a sponsor with us for quite a while. Hopefully they stick around for quite a long, more, quite a long time still. Um, they do switching and wireless networking. Dominic Mayer is our sales guy and our point of contact with Extreme Networks, D Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R, at extremenetworks.com. If you'd like to learn more about Extreme Networks, find out how they are offering physical and wireless networking in most, if not all, of the Major League Baseball stadiums and some of the NFL stadiums and I believe NHL stadiums as well. Email Dominic and see how they can bring that uh, sports-level uh, Major League Baseball level, level wireless network to your K-12 school district. Mayor at ExtremeNetworks.com. Mark, you and I met pre-show to come up with our agenda. Something that I didn't talk about that I would, forgot about. Some awesome piece of investigative reporting that you did in the last week. Do you want to talk about your international logon thing with Google that you found? Oh yeah. Con- so content aware. Yeah. So we have been uh we've been struggling with this for the last few months and trying to figure out exactly how to implement a uh an international block um so that our accounts are only accessible within the United States. But we have plenty of circumstances where uh staff or student are traveling legitimately for school or just for other and they just need access. So we've been struggling with like, how do we do this and how do we uh, create a system to, to override? Um, so we, I posted an article on K12 tech pro over the last week, got quite a lot of attraction um, because we, we figured out a way and it's, it's 
hard, very hard to describe uh, over a podcast. But if you take a look at K12 Tech Pro, uh, you can see my instructions of how to implement a international restriction block in Google Workspace. And uh, we had a, a lively discussion about some of the pros and cons. So funny story. So I implemented your amazing uh, settings. I, I followed your beautifully documented document over how to article over on K12 Tech Pro. Uh, I turned this on earlier in the week. And today I get an email from our, our sys coordinator that says, Hey, I just got an email from a parent. They are their 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 kids are signed up for summer school, but they're traveling internationally and they will be 12 hour, 12 hours behind us during summer school. And they want to know if that will present an issue. I'm like, well, as of this week, it presents, <laughs> presents an issue. I'm going to need to know who they are and where they're going uh, to try and keep this from being an issue. So thanks a lot, Mark. Um, hey. <laughs> but but it is worth pointing out two things. Uh, in your how-to, you do show a workaround on how to make it work if you do have faculty members that are or staff members. Dang it, students that are traveling traveling internationally or for one reason or another would be logging in from a different country. The other thing that we found out, I don't remember, it might have been Pam from New Hampshire commented about this, that this feature set, this con context aware feature is only available if you pay up, right? Yeah, it is one of the, uh, the premium uh, license features in Google Workspace. Yeah. Dang it, Google. Well... And I had this conversation with uh, another uh, uh, friend who was just saying that, you know, Microsoft does the same thing where some of the more advanced security features, which really should be just part of the core product are, are hidden behind that paywall. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to add something that you, you all should, should consider. And I'm a little bit uh, annoyed by this. Um, but we also found out in implementing a uh, restriction to, to our login so that you have to be in the United States that Google has not caught up to the fact that Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Oh, you're kidding me. No. And I'm a little bit annoyed by that. Did you, who was it? There was some government entity recently that caught some flack about a statement about Puerto Rico being uh, more or less international and not part of the U S and they had to issue an official governmental like decree or govern governor's executive order stating making it very very clear that Puerto Rico should not be considered international because it, because it is a US territory. Right? Um shoot, I just saw this on Twitter the other day. Yeah, I saw in the story as well of somebody, you know, maybe a business that was trying to Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Ask somebody for their passport when they're um when they're somewhere. Uh, they wouldn't accept the driver's license. So, if you're going to implement that one, uh, I strongly recommend just Add in Puerto Rico to the rule. Interesting. Um, and don't put yourself in a position where you are uh, denying Puerto Rico their their true citizenship to the United yeah. States. So well, and what about like American Samoa and yep. Guam? Yep. What other <clears throat> what other US territory should we be concerned about? I don't I don't think we should make this a geography quiz. We're just gonna look <laughs> we're gonna look bad. Hawaii, right? Hawaii is a state. Um <laughs> Uh, so the other thing that we talked about pre pre meeting, we don't do these pre meetings when Chris is around cause we get sidetracked. So, um, the other thing we talked about was SZA came out with a refreshed version of the, uh, the document hashtag stop ransomware guide. 
Um, this is a joint effort from CISA, MSISAC, FBI, uh, and it, they did a little refresh on it, added some content. So if you are not familiar with this, definitely go check out Stop Ransomware Guide from CISA. You can Google it. We'll also put this in the show notes. But this is uh, kind of like their their top things that you can do to prevent a ransomware outbreak in your environment. I figure we could just kind of step through a couple of these. Don't you think, Mark? Uh, yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just reading it real quick. Okay. <laughs> I'll start then. Uh, so Mark, just for notes, we're on page five, uh, follow along, uh, main, the first one they mentioned, and this is not going to be news to anyone maintain your encrypted backups of, of critical data. And they go into offsite stuff, um, backup, 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 you know, that's, that's a key thing. Uh, maintain and regularly exercise a basic cyber incident response plan, IRP. Uh, this is huge in Missouri right now. Our insurance carrier in Missouri is requiring school districts to come up with an IRP. So this has been, I, I spent a good portion of the day talking with a couple other districts. They were all writing theirs and they wanted them reviewed by third parties just to make sure they weren't missing anything. Um, CISA also, I believe it was CISA, came out with a, a incident response plan template um, about a week and a half ago. So I will find that and put that in the show notes too. If you were looking for an IRP template. Um, I also, I, I like that their suggestion is also to ensure a hard copy of the plan and an offline version yes. is available. Yes. We've, we've got an offline copy of ours printed out in our computer room and my superintendent also has a copy. Now I carry, I carry mine wherever I go. It's in my bag. Do you really? Yeah. Interesting. Like, where, where did I put my bag? I don't know where my bag is, but I, it's, it's somewhere. Interesting. Now, one of the things that I, I didn't get beat up on. So I, I sent my IRP to um, our state consortium as well as our uh, state, <clears throat> state Homeland Security person to review it. And they were awesome enough to review it and send me back some critiques. One of the critiques I received was not having versioning um, and, and a edit table of what was edited at each version. So I, I fixed that. Mark, do you have a versioning, versioning table on yours? Um, I do as of tomorrow. Yeah. 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 And the other, the other thing that I got dinged on, which is an easy thing to overlook is defining in your plan, what the definition of an event and the definition of an incident and what each of them and how they relate. Do you mm. have that in your incident response plan, Mark? Also, I'm going to be adding that tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah. just for a fun fact, the IRP template from CISA has that language in it to begin with. So if you don't know, in the tabletop event that I was at this week went into this in good detail, you can have good events and you can have bad events. Bad events lead to an incident. An incident is always a bad thing. Um, you can have events happening in your event log of bad bad login attempts that a series of those failed login attempts then leads to an incident of uh, someone credential stuffing. Um, so yeah, they they want at least it's kind of it's been seen as a best practice by the folks I in my in my realm um, of having that definition of an event versus an incident. So the next time somebody calls me up and says, I think I've been hacked, should I just say, hmm, right now it's just an event? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. that's that is the response. Yes. Got it. Is this an right. is this an event 
or an incident. Um, and then, you know, they go into MFA, limiting RDP access, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, disabling SMB versions one and two. If you haven't done that, you should. Um, using, this is an interesting term, phishing resistant MFA. Have you heard of that before? Uh, phishing resistant MFA. I'm looking, I'm looking. I'm going to guess that's like when I, I've heard the phrase a lot recently is just MFA fatigue where you're just used to getting that prompt every so often you just click yes. Is that what they mean? No. I So they have, again, they have that definition linked in this document. Uh, phishing resistant MFA, they have that defined as either like a FIDO key um, or web authen, A-U-T-H-N authentication. Oh, I see what you mean. Yep. Or PKI based. Yep. So, um, so with all of that said, go Google or in the show notes, go Google hashtag stop ransomware guide, and it should link you to uh, CISA.gov's website. It was updated on May 23rd, so two days fresh. Um, so good. I'm actually going through this. This is really good. So we know what your team is doing tomorrow, right? You're printing this off in color and handing this to some fellas and say, Sure are. This. <laughs> okay, go go fix my IRP. Put a definition of a response or an incident response and version logs. Yeah. Um, and I, I completely understand the rationale for version logging, if, especially if you have physical copies. You know, if, if the bag in your, the copy in your bag is version 1.2, the copy in the data center is version 1.8, and really you're living off of version 3.0, like you need to know that, you know? Yeah, I see what I you mean. I completely understand that. Um, yeah, there's there's some really good stuff in here, and, and apparently the the new stuff from CISA is some of the initial threat vector, how to protect against some of the initial threat vectors, um, and of course they advertise for some of their free services like MDBR, the um, malicious domain blocking service from CISA, which if you're not doing that is completely free to be an MSI ISAC member and receive that MDBR DNS service. I see something in here that I'm really excited about because I've been fighting with my team over it. Uh, Buffalo pictures? I, I can't say what it is, but they 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 don't agree with this. And I've said, hey, look, everybody keeps saying we should do this. Like, no, 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 no. Here are the reasons why we're not going to do this. Oh. And I, you know, going back to earlier conversation, I come from the instructional background. I like to, you know, I'm not going to step on their toes. Yeah. But I'm going to step on all their toes tomorrow. Oh. Watch this. out, yep. guys. He's coming for you. Uh, so, yeah, they mentioned EDR in here. Uh, monitoring indicators of activity and block malware file file creation, creation with Windows Sysmon. Find that interesting. Um, create policies to uh, include cybersecurity awareness training, uh, protective domain name services, yeah, some good stuff in here. You'll you'll probably find a thing or two that you're not doing that maybe you should. Um, so hmm. managed what what fifteen character passwords? Yes. Um, the word password is more than is less than fifteen characters, so I'm gonna have to change my password. Oh, Mark. Oh, so that's a um. I can't say this funny story, Mark. I've got a really funny story for you later. Um, so we'll quickly talk about. One of our last sponsors for tonight, Managed Methods, 
They are back. They've been with us before. Managed Methods is offering a free Google Workspace or Office 365 if you're in, in the, you know, one of those people that uses O365. Um, Managed Methods is offering a free security audit. Uh, check out the podcast description on how to get a hold of them and uh, get in touch with getting that free assessment from managed methods. Um, I may do this because I, you know, Google, that's one of the things like this context aware thing, Mark, that you found, like I had no clue that that was a thing. Um, so how many other things are out there that I'm not, am I not doing that? I just flat don't know about because my, I don't have the time to, to sit all day in admin console and see what's new. Uh, I really There's, think- I, I will say, so we had an incident recently or an, I guess, sorry, an event, an event. event. Good, Mark. Uh, And it caused us to like go through and, and I, I will not, I'm not gonna lie. I spent my weekend just going through the admin console of like, what is there that we could do to prevent this? And uh, there's a lot and you have to decide what works best for your community. So it's, (laughs) there's so many things buried within your systems. Well, and, and it gets back to that whole risk. Re- it's not a risk reward, but it's a usability feature. You know, how many barriers are you going to put in place for usability? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's unfortunately, that's how people still kind of view uh, MFA for for now. Um, never mind the fact that their bank requires it and stock, you know, whatever. We, we can get on that soapbox later. Um, so we have an interview with Visor coming up. That's going to be the rest of this uh episode, uh, Chris and I interviewed the guys from Visor. We think they're going to ISTE. And if you are going to ISTE, stop by the booth and ask them where the Visor Visor is. We think we convinced them that getting a, you know, like a 19, really cool, hard plastic 1980s Visor with the, with the word Visor, V-I-Z-O-R <clears throat> across the top is a great idea. I think it's a freaking marketing genius. Um, they said they're going to ISTE and they're going to try and, and see what they can do to get that going at ISTE. So if you're at ISTE, go by the visor booth and ask them for the visor visor. Ask for Dean and Jeff. That's that's the guys you want to talk to. But that's what the interview coming up at the end of this episode is about. Uh, stick around and listen to those guys from Visor. Mark, any closing thoughts for tonight for episode 120? No, I got nothing. I hear your doggy barking. I'm going to go on mute now. <laughs> He's yelling at his dog, probably. Uh, Mark, I think we did good one without Chris tonight, and both uh, both of us were having technical difficulties. I think we did a fantastic job, don't you think? Yeah, you with the technical background and me with instructional background, I think we made it through this. And we both suffered. Yes. A lot. <laughs> All right, Mark, I will... Uh, thanks for hanging out with me tonight without Chris, I, I, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. All right, so I am hanging out currently with Josh. We don't know Mark's at. He didn't show up today. I think he uh, but left I, early. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but I, 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 I drug in some guys. We got Dean and Jeff from Visor uh, with their hat collection, uh, their Visor collection. Just kidding. That's <laughs> Visor with a Z, V-I-Z-O-R. How's it going, Dean and Jeff? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Josh. Doing really well. Thanks for having us. 
you guys have never heard hat jokes or visor jokes before, right? <laughs> no, no, it's first time. Yeah, that was the that was the yeah. very first one. Uh, Actually, <laughs> I remember the, the first time I did hear it though. Legitimately, the first time I did hear it was on one of your podcasts. Like, <laughs> like visor giveaway and stuff like that. I, gave away that. I was you like, need, wow. I feel like, yeah, we you got need, good ideas. Yeah, we have great ideas. So there's another <laughs> vendor that didn't like our ideas, but you guys, you need a visor with the word visor across the top, and like, I mean. How how can you miss that? Yeah, no, you're right. I uh, I kind of slapped my forehead when I was like, how did I not think of that? That's really good. <laughs> All right. So speaking of Visor, let's just pretend we know nothing about you guys or your services, your company. Uh, would you just tell us what is Visor? Yeah, sure. So uh, firstly, Visor is a software solution and it helps schools and districts uh, manage their Chromebooks and other IT assets. Um, so we... Over the last 10 years, we've worked with uh, lots of different schools and districts implementing their processes and their workflows into Visor and where possible, automating um, those processes. Um, so at a, a high level, I guess, what we're providing is a single pane of glass where you can go and see all of your IT assets, whether they're Chromebooks, iPads, uh, Windows machines, um, projector smart boards, that like that single place where you can see them. So you're not jumping from Google admin consoles, spreadsheets, student information systems, Apple school manager, it's that single place um, to see, yeah, all of those assets. Okay. Yeah, we've talked about this some before. Like I currently use my library uh, catalog system mm -hmm. for some of my tracking. And then I'm also looking in Google admin console uh, to match up some of those things. Uh, even my uh, my wireless uh, uh, network, uh, there's some reporting I can do in it, and, and I kind of attach MAC addresses uh, across uh, all of those things. So Visor pushes all that stuff uh, together. But you can do Windows as well, right? Is there anything else you do, Windows, Chromebook? Yeah, so the Windows machines, the Chromebooks, um, whether they're iPads, then any of the computing devices, bringing those um, together. So we're not replacing uh, MDM solutions. So if you have those um, like on the Windows side and configuration management solutions, they're great for what they do um, in terms of organizational units, group policies, um, pushing software down. What we're around is really the processes of managing those as assets. So uh, taking those assets, knowing who has them, where they are, what state they're in, so how many are in use um, with students or staff or um, underutilized, uh, like waiting in rotation, uh, out for repair or reaching end of life. So it's really the life cycle of those devices and the processes around them. So and I think that's where we're different from uh, a library system or even a spreadsheet because it's really the processes of moving a Chromebook or any other asset from one state to another. Uh, so at this time of year, then um, bringing all of those assets back in. So we've got workflows of simplifying that process of the device collection, uh, simplifying the process in a few months' time of getting those devices back into students' hands and really reducing the time from minutes per device, bringing that down to you know, fractions of a second is what we're looking for. Uh, but again, automating those processes, what schools are doing today, 
and what can be done in an automated uh, sort of fashion. Perhaps we can sort of speak to a couple of those use cases. Okay. Uh, but I, that's how I see we're different from those uh, sort of jumping from one solution to another. So it's certainly the centralizing aspect, um, but the process of, around that as well. So what are some of the unique challenges or the unique needs that schools have that you guys have been able to address, number one, but number two, that kind of caught you guys off guard or maybe surprised you guys um, when you when you started having users report back with what this has been able to solve for them? Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, our history for the past 30 years, we, we, we've been focused on enterprise vertical markets of all kinds. We've always had education space in there, or education um, clients uh, uh, and that space represented on our client list. But uh, about 10 years ago, when we started focusing on, on the education space and specifically K-12, one of the first things in terms of surprise that jumped out to me was the uh, the, the ratio, right? The, the the ratio of text to end users in the education space versus text to end users in, in the enterprise space. So there in enterprise, it's it's like one to 10. So that always, uh, yeah, it's still even after 10 years, it's still surprising what tech teams have to do and how outnumbered they are by end users, obviously that being the student population primarily and then faculty and staff. And so that was a big challenge. Um, what can we do? So our mandate really is to simplify as much as possible the administration of those assets um, and visors ability to quickly manage the processes that like Dean was talking about, the check-in and check-out process, the ability to leverage non-technical users and recruit them to perform administrative tasks in the Google Admin Console, for example, with Chromebooks without ever knowing what the Google Admin Console is. So that was our mandate. Simplify this, allow us to use non-technical staff, leverage the them, teachers, librarians, media specialists who you never want to give, you know, exposure to the Google Admin Console to, but how do we use them? How do we how do we include them in our process? And so Visor through the, again, that mandate with a single school district about 10 years ago has provided that a very simple, easy to use interface, um, easy to the point of, again, non-technical staff being able to jump in and, and, and move Chromebooks from one OU to another, for example, just through a checkout process, which is a really cool um, and I think highly resonant sort of feature within the Visor platform, right? So uh, tech directors and, and, and technologists in school districts are, you know, how do we how do we get this done without having to go to all these multiple sources, like Dean said, and, and, and I like to think that, and, and that's the feedback, I guess, that we get from our customers, that that's one of the features that, that really, really helps out in, in automating the processes. So I'm curious, you said um, you, you get, you saw an average or the kind of industry standard for businesses, one tech to 10 users. What do you see or do you have a number from education facilities that <laughs> um, that tech to user and and by user, I'm going to say student and faculty staff users. What's mm -hmm. that ratio look like in, in schools yeah. that you're seeing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of all over the board, but like one to 100 would be a, an exceptionally well-staffed um, sure. technical yeah. uh, school district. Yeah. So that really one to 100. So, but yeah, one to one to two to 50, 500. There's districts that we work with that it's literally one to a thousand, which that, is. Uh, yeah, that's my, I'm raising my hand. Yeah. My, my yeah. District. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's amazing to me to, to, to think about what it is that you guys have to do you know, with, with that number, like Josh, for you, one, one, uh, one to a thousand. I mean, that's just a tremendous number of end users and more than more importantly, and this is what Dean was just alluding to in terms of bringing the, the, the devices back in and then re, uh, allocating them the, the, the following year, 
that doesn't happen in in in, a, in enterprise, right? Like you're not doing right. a, a thousand user turnaround every every uh, nine months. You know and, what I mean? And, and then three months later, and that handout and collection, like we're we're getting ready to do our collection now. That handout and collection is typically done in one day. Like my high school, we have we have right at a thousand kids in my high school, and we collect. The seniors are already gone, so those devices have been collected. But just roughly say we collect 750 devices in about 30 minutes um, because of how we work that workflow. We we actually distribute that out into the classroom. But if it wasn't for that methodology, it, it would take us forever. Like there's there's no there's not enough manpower in my department to do that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's where those efficiencies are super, super important. Yeah, we had a district that I'm working with right now, actually, they uh, wanted to implement a new methodology for collection right now, or prior to Visor, they were using classrooms, so homeroom teachers would gather the devices, and then they would be responsible for essentially doing a preliminary diagnostic, which to me is insane. And then having to get that to technology and then uh, technology, uh, the tech department moving those um, devices into, you know, collected OUs or, you know, whatever the OU structure is. I forget specifically in this example, but what they did with visors, they implemented a process by which all the students were bringing this back to a central location, a gymnasium, I think it was, or an auditorium. Um, And there's a person responsible for simply scanning each device as it comes in and checking it in. So the kids basically just walk in, drop it off and walk away because of the integrations within that environment, visor knows as a student because of the integration with the student information system. Um, the integration with Google Admin Console means we have all of that data inside of Visor, right? All of the Chromebook information inside of Visor. So it's just scanning. It brings it right back in. So they're they're able to do this in bulk and much, much quicker than they would have been able to um, without Visor. So you mentioned integration with student information systems. Can you give us a couple names of, of student information systems that you know you guys are rock solid, you work with, um, Maybe they ha- they're one roster compliant interface. Can you give us a couple of those names? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I'll start with our official partner, and that's PowerSchool. Okay. Uh, so that's number one. Um, but the other ones with which we have, you know, the most experience, I'd say probably right behind PowerSchool is Skyward, um, followed closely by Infinite Campus and Aries. Um, those would be the big ones that I can think of just in terms of, um, more experience. Yeah. But the top ones there for sure. Yeah. Those are, uh, well, certainly PowerSchool. I mean, that represents... I mean, I think, you know, the lion's share of, of the uh, the market space um, for sure. And then the other ones, yeah, Skyward, Infinite Campus, and Aries being rounding out the top four, I think, without question, in my, my experience. I know I showed, I, I guess, Dean, you and I sat through a demo or something at some point. Maybe it was you too, Jeff. Um, moving, letting a librarian move a device uh, in Visor to say it's lost uh, and then it went ahead and did that Google Admin Console work to mark it as lost, as disabled. Uh, that's a pretty big deal uh, to to get to automate that. And and then also in Visor to uh, go ahead and say that something's damaged. Uh, and then on the tech department side, we could see within Visor what's under warranty, what's not under warranty, uh, where it's at in the process of getting repaired, that kind of thing. Can you speak to those things a little bit, features that might stick out? Yeah, yeah you, I want you to jump in, but there's one that I, I just don't want to forget here, just in terms of that example. Um, 
for me, the, the, the most important part about Visor is, again, simplifying that and recruiting uh, non-technical staff and just simplifying the entire process. So in Visor, one of the cool things that was achieved was on repair. So this isn't necessarily a lost one, although that's a cool automation feature too, the ability to remotely disable a device once a student reports it as lost or stolen. And there's lots of ways they can do that, but it's a pretty um, simple process. Well, it's a completely automated process from the point at which the student identifies or uh, reports their device as lost or stolen. But um, when it comes back in for repair, this was essentially, again, part of the original mandate from that school district that we started working with a long time ago, um, was their librarians were getting sort of uh, bogged down by the, the the clunkiness of trying to collect that broken device or the one needs repair, get the student a new device, allow the student to go back to learning, allow teachers to go back to teaching or librarians to go back to doing what they were doing in terms of managing their processes. So Visor allows for a, a, an immediate check-in. So you scan the device and check it in that can automatically create a, a repair ticket. And then that repair ticket can get automatically assigned to the appropriate tech resource, notify that resource that there's a device requiring repair and then pick up or delivery of the repair uh, of the device for repair. So that process, the simplicity of that, it, it's, it's, it's less than a single click in so far as all you have to do is check it in and that kicks off all the processes behind. So not only Great. moving that OU, uh, that, that device from, let's say the, the grade level OU into a in repair OU, um, it also creates that repair ticket. So nobody has to go to another place, open up another window, you know, click six, seven times in, in order to create a ticket. That whole thing has happened with that one process. Sorry, Dean. No, I was just about to say, they're my two favorite features. And uh, mm. I think one of the reasons for that is that they can be triggered from the self-service portal. So you could have a family on a Sunday evening say, hey, we've lost this device go into the self-service portal, report it as lost. Then Visor, as Jeff mentioned, will trigger those processes. So disable the device, um, create a chargeback, um, calculate that charge. So if you have a different sort of a calculation mechanism, so maybe the first lost device is free and the second one is sort of 50%. So it'll calculate all of that and then notify the parent where they can get a replacement device. So and all of that can happen on a Sunday evening without a tech being involved. And that's the thing I really like. So the mandate, which Jeff mentioned, about reducing workload, because we appreciate that there's very limited resource within these schools and districts. So the more we can automate, and I love that Sunday evening approach. And likewise, for a device which needs a repair, self-service portal, create the repair ticket, or trigger those emails, um, trigger um, the cost um, based on whether there's insurance, malicious damage, all of those things all happening automatically. So reducing steps and tasks, which IT need to do on a Monday morning. You know, there's enough things going on a Monday morning. So we can, the more of those we can reduce is uh, what we're looking to do. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I can think through like the several, again, if I'm using my library system for this stuff, and then the librarians reaching out to say lost, stolen, damage, whatever. We had the student go to a a Google form to fill out stuff that they're getting a loaner. Um, there's just several things pieced out, and not to mention then the follow up is assigning that fee in our SIS. Uh, that's another piece that you guys can take care of for us too. That's very cool. 
Yeah, the, 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 those are um, like those processes to each one of them, if it's not kind of locked down, represent gaps wherein these devices can be lost. <laughs> and that's when we get into like ROI is, is, is pretty quick to recognize if you're uh, reducing the number of devices that are lost. I know Dean has an example of, uh, of costs associated with just a small number of devices going, you know, into a missing situation. Like you don't know where they are if you don't have a, a kind of a, a you know, a, you know, a process without gaps, then they, you know, the devices fall into the gra- gaps, you lose, you know, 20 or 30 devices. And that represents tens of thousands of dollars gone from the district, you know, it's it's a very, so with this kind of lockdown sort of and, and efficiency, it reduces those gaps, it fills those gaps completely so that there's no, uh, there's no loss, right? So a librarian collects a Chromebook from a student, let's say, just as an example, or a teacher does, um, and then they their attention gets drawn somewhere else. Well, Visor knows as soon as that device is scanned, Visor knows exactly what the situa- situation is, can update the data and the status of that device immediately so that if and when, not if, but when the librarian or that resource gets distracted by something else, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not allowing that device to fall through any gaps. Yeah. Um, we've been at this for a little bit. Give me, uh, to kind of start wrapping this up, give me the top two things, pieces of advice that you would give an IT admin when it comes to Chromebooks um, when they're trying to wrangle this, <laughs> the, the circus that can be Chromebooks and, and rollout and collection. Give me your, give me your top two pieces of advice. Um, I'd say the first one would be to consider the complete life cycle um, of the device. I think one thing which is often overlooked when a school district purchases the Chromebooks is, well, what are we going to do at each stage of the device's life cycle? Um, so, you know, taking it right back to like acquisition. So if we're going to purchase these using a particular funding program, then how are we going to ensure that any students which meet the criteria of that funding program are going to get these particular devices how are we going to keep track of that um you know through allocation which we've discussed uh, end of life and um, when in the when's the end of life of these devices is it when the aue date comes up uh, five years after when it hits a certain amount of repairs and who's going to be responsible for these tasks which come out of these life cycle stages. So mapping all of that out up front and tying that to an inventory. So, uh, you know, whether it's uh, a sort of spreadsheet or a tool like ours, then I think that's an important thing um, for school districts uh, to do. Um, I think the other tip is like, uh, have a look at zero touch enrollment. We hear some really good feedback about that. Um, so we don't sell Chromebooks, but I'd say speak to your Chromebook resellers about uh, zero touch enrollment and whether that can reduce your time to getting those devices out and getting those enrolled uh, in the Google Admin console. So yeah. uh, um, we work with um, Chromebooks which have gone through ZTE so you can see them in Visor and start to allocate those out to uh, uh, schools and classes before they've even been shipped uh, from the reseller. So uh, yeah, I think that's well worth having a conversation um, um, to your Chromebook resellers about. It, it's funny you, you bring up ZTE. That's or, what, it's three, three years old, two years old, roughly. It's interesting to see that you know, first it was vendors doing white glove and now it's it's Google taking that on with ZTE. I think that's that was definitely a much needed advancement. And it's also interesting you bring up the 
uh, Chromebook lifecycle. We interviewed Lucas last week uh, in that PIRG study. That was a dirty interview. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> bad. Uh, so Chromebook lifecycle is definitely something that's been a hot topic. And, you know, some of the new, the new devices, uh, the devices we just bought are going to go till 2030 if they live that long. Um, I do have one off script question for you guys, and it's, I've been listening to you talk and I've, I've picked up on the fact each of you do have a distinct, um, uh, dialect, I guess, to your voice. You have, um, Jeff, Arkansas, I, I was thinking Dean's, <laughs> Dean is probably from Arkansas or Texas is what I'm guessing. Um, you nailed and, it. <laughs> and Jeff, are you from Minnesota or somewhere North? I am very uh, close. Yeah, I'm actually okay. in Canada. Yeah. Okay. In, oh, okay. Canada. okay. Yeah, north of that border. So, uh, yeah, I try to hide the uh, the accent as much as possible, but apparently it uh, it sneaks through now. Yeah, uh, you watching up you hockey? Said a you a few times. Yeah. yeah. Oh, did I? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, procedure is what what got it for me. Dean. Oh, okay. Uh, where are you at, Dean? Yeah. So yeah, I am in the UK, and okay. uh, so funnily enough, the uh, organisation was sort of set up in the UK around sort of thirty years okay. ago, uh, and that's why visor is spelled wrong. <laughs> <that's>, uh, <laughs> so we needed to get that Z in there, like color. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but yeah, but now um, yeah, we, I spend most of my time talking to school districts out in the states. So from two o'clock my time, uh, oh so, wow, yeah, nine a.m. Uh, your time. But uh, uh, yeah, but it's good fun. So yeah, I'm getting out to the states as much as I can. So I was in uh, Columbus earlier uh, this year, okay. um, going to uh, ISTE in Philly uh, oh, cool. next month. So yeah. looking forward to that. So uh, um, yeah, so if you guys are out there, sort of uh, yeah, say hi. So um, we'll. Uh, be great to touch base. Uh, and you, so you guys, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, you guys are good. We're going to talk over each other now. Uh, yeah, you guys are going to hang out with us on future episodes, I know, of the podcast. Uh, but you guys are also sponsors of K12 Tech Pro. Uh, so we're happy about that uh, as well. So if you haven't joined, if you're listening and you haven't joined K12 Tech Pro, uh, make sure you get on there. Uh, Visor is on there, V I Z O R. Uh, and you can hang out, see what they're up to on there as well. If if you if if a person is listening and they want to know more about Visor, who should they talk to? Jeff Dean, who? Yeah, sure. So if you go to uh, visor.cloud, so with the Z dot cloud um, slash K twelve Tech Talk, um, then we've got a promo on there. There's uh, some screenshots of what we do. Um, yeah, you can uh, schedule a demo. It'd be great to sort of show you around in depth. Um, so yeah, so uh, visor.cloud slash K twelve Tech Talk. Uh, Josh, Dean, I kept interrupting you. I'm, oh, I'm doing it again. What do you get to say, Josh? I was just going to say, if you're going to ISTE next month, Dean, you have enough time to order a visor with the visor across the front of it. And hand <laughs> visor, see visor. If, I'm going to see if I can get some visor. <laughs> a visor that says visor. Yeah, a visor, I mean, that, visor. It's perfect. Of all of the stuff that gets handed out at conferences, like you've got to be different. And that's why you yeah, know, nobody there gives an, visors. There was another vendor that I said had, should do a squeezy thing. Like vi- nobody does visor. And what better way to do it is a visor with the name of the company that is visor across the front. It's just, I'm a, I'm a marketing genius. I'll, I'll just, yeah, I love it. A visor visor. There's nothing that I can think of that would be better than <laughs> like handing that, it visor like, visors. Like that'll go up the ranks in the company. You guys will look like geniuses yeah. doing promotions yeah. coming. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what titles you guys have now, but if you get a yeah. visor visor. <laughs> <laughs> 
sky's the limit. Co-CEOs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right, guys. We thanks for we thank you guys for hanging out with us, and uh, we really appreciate you sponsoring all the the episodes and hanging out with us for uh, I guess uh, several more episodes, quite a few more episodes. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to our uh, next time we get to chat. All right. Sounds good.